morning, friends. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 13. If you've got a Bible uh, nearby and uh, want to follow the reading, always good tip to follow the reading to make sure that what the preacher says is in the book and not just something they're making up. You'll be aware, unless you're visiting today, that there's a series going on this summer on the parables. And uh, I was thinking the other day when I was preparing that, uh, that probably you've chosen some of the more obscure parables as well. Uh, because there are some parables that are less known. But uh, I've been given probably one of the best known. And that's the parable of the sower. Or some people have called it the parable of the soils. Uh, that alongside the parable of the Good Samaritan are two of probably the best-known parables of Jesus. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Chapter 13 of Matthew, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to begin with a story which is a little bit embarrassing. It's very personal, and I trust it will help you to pray for me. Um, when we were first married, <coughs> we were uh, poor students. Ruth was finishing off her studies in London. I think I'd just finished, but we rented a Baptist manse. And um, it was a very old Victorian uh, place. It had about six bedrooms. We, we lived in two rooms. Uh, but the, the thing that really was quite a heartache to Ruth was the fact that the back garden, which was quite substantial, was just a jungle. If you've ever seen a, a garden that's never been tended for about five or six years, you'll know it just grows completely uh, out, of, out of all description. And every day uh, when we got up and Ruth went off to work, she'd say to me, that garden depresses me. We really must do something about that garden. So being a kind of newly married, dutiful husband, I decided I'd do something to help. And I went along to a tool hire company and explained what I was looking for. And the man behind the counter said, what you need is a flamethrower. <laughs> I am not making any of this up. And basically, I hired one for the day and had great fun in the back garden. I think they call it scorched earth policy. And uh, I just completely set fire to everything. And 
it all went. And when Ruth came home from work, I thought she'd be so happy when I opened the back door. <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating, she burst into tears. Because what I'd done was, i just basically devastated everything. There was nothing left alive in that garden. And apparently there were plants that were savable, they were okay, but it had all gone. There was just this smoking pile <laughs> wafting up into the evening air. I have never been allowed out in a garden <laughs> unsupervised for almost 50 years. I've never been allowed out on my own again. Now, some of you may think I did it on purpose. I didn't. I didn't. I truthfully thought I was doing a good deed. And there's a parable in that story in itself. But the reason I tell you that is, I think most of us understand that growing plants is a delicate business. And it requires skill. You need to know what you're doing in a garden. And Jesus is saying here that spiritual growth needs similar care and attention. It doesn't just happen. We need to make sure that we approach the topic of spiritual growth, growing in our faith, in our understanding, in our love for God, and our service for him in the world. That needs care and attention. Now, the good news about this parable is uh, Jesus gives us the explanation. Because if you drop down uh, to verse 10 in the reading, the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to people in parables? That was one of the things that Jesus did. He always told stories. And he told stories that related to the world, uh, to the community. Um, in a few months' time, Ruth and I will be on the the side of the mountain uh, by the Lake of Galilee with a Christian tour group that we'll, we'll be taking, God willing, next uh, spring. And when you get there and you see the geography, you can see the natural amphitheater of how people would gather around, Jesus getting in a boat on the lake, and uh, his voice would be amplified by the water and by the topography. And he, he, he taught, but he always used stories. Maybe there was a farmer up on the hillside as he, he was talking. And he was going along throwing his seed from the little sack that he carried at his side. Jesus picked the picture and said, listen to this. And then he goes on with the disciples and he said, I'll explain it to you. He says, verse 18, listen to what the parable of the sower means. And it, it makes it very plain that the seed that he's talking about is the Word of God. The Bible that we hold in our hands. The Word of God. The farmer is the one who communicates the Word of God. And that could be in church on a Sunday or in a, a Bible study that we go to. And the responses are different. Something different happens to each of the four categories of seed. And that's why I said just now, sometimes people say it's better to call it the parable of the soils, the different kinds of soil, rather than the parable of the sower. Because it's all to do with listening and receiving the seed. Let me explain that to you. He talks about the seed that was stolen. And uh, in verse 18, you can read that. When anyone hears the message, verse 19, when anyone 
hears the message of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. This is the seed sown along the path. That makes sense, doesn't it? Some of it didn't land in the neat furrows that have been plowed, but it fell at the side on the hard path. And the birds, eager to follow, swoop down and take the seed, and that's their lunch for the day. And that tells us that when we come to church, when we open our Bibles, when we're sitting in a home group, it's perfectly possible that we can be elsewhere in our thoughts. I've been teaching students for the last 16 years, and the phrase, the lights are on but nobody's home, has come home to me in a whole new meaning. People are there physically, but you look and you think, they're miles away. They're somewhere else. Or take what some of us have known frighteningly, that you've driven all the way home and you can't remember driving all the way home. You know when you've had some bad news or you've had a difficult conversation and you find that you've driven home because your mind has been elsewhere. You've driven on autopilot, but your mind has been elsewhere. Jesus said, that's the seed that was stolen snatched away. The second category is the, the seed that was scorched. And he said this seed was the, the seed that fell on rock-hard ground so that the little plant couldn't get its roots down to draw up moisture. And under the heat of the sun, it just shriveled and died. It had no roots. Look at verse 20. Jesus said, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, no depth, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Scorched. Because when the heat of the sun begins to burn, they... There's no roots, there's no depth that enables that little plant to survive. Category number three, the seed that was strangled. This was the seed that fell on the part of the farm that had not been prepared by weeding. So as the small plants began to grow, so the weeds and the brambles grew up as well and choked the very life from it. Look at verse 22. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. I find that phrase, the deceitfulness of wealth, really intriguing. What, what does that mean? It means that if we are comfortable... If we've got what we need to live in life, and for those of us, the majority of us in the United Kingdom, compared to others in the world, are wealthy. If you've got a roof over your head, and if you've got food to eat today, compared to others, that's wealth. Well, those things can cushion you. They can make you feel everything in life is fine. I've got enough in the bank to, to get me through the deceitfulness of wealth. 
And I wonder if some of us can think about friends who were initially very enthusiastic about following Jesus and then fell away. Other things came along. Other interests, other people, other hobbies. And then, thankfully, we get to the fourth category, the seed that was successful, the seed that made it. It fell into well-prepared soil and in time produced a bumper crop. That, that little phrase that comes in uh, verse 8, it produced a crop 160, 30 times what was sown, is one of those miracles that God created, that you put something very small in the ground and then you get a big harvest. And that's the spiritual truth. It may seem very small, it may seem insignificant, but if that soil is good soil, then it will produce a bumper crop. Jesus says that in verse 23. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding more than was sown. It's interesting that uh, Matthew records this parable, Luke does, and Mark does. We call those three Gospels the synoptics because they're seen together. But Luke adds something in his uh, version of what Jesus said. The seed of the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. That's in Luke chapter 8. So what do we make of all of this? What did it mean then for that crowd on the hillside in Galilee? And what does it mean now? As I've reflected on this, I, I think there are three takeaways for us. The so what's. So what does that mean for us? The first is that God's word is powerful and capable of producing a large harvest. Jesus is saying, don't underestimate the power of the word of God. Just simply the word of God by itself. Now this means a great deal to me because I had a real encounter with God just by reading the Bible. Uh, I'd grown up within a Christian family. My dad was a pastor. I'd gone to church. I'd listened to more sermons than is, is healthy, to be honest. And, but it was on my own, picking up a Gideon Bible in uh, a, a conference center where I was staying, just reading another parable where God the Holy Spirit spoke to me and the Spirit broke through into my life. There was no one else in the room. There was no preacher. There was no emotional, emotional music or anything like that. It was just the Word of God speaking to me. And we shouldn't be surprised because do you remember in Isaiah 55, uh, the prophet says this. These are the words of, of God he's speaking. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, but making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word, says God, that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. What God's saying there is something we need to get hold of 
and hang on to in our prayers and in the way that we plan our programs, God's word is powerful and capable of producing a large harvest. I have a friend who's just a few months ago went to be with the Lord, but he had spent most of his ministry as a prison chaplain. And uh, he had little New Testaments that he used to take into prison with him, whether he was taking a service or doing a a small group or a one-to-one with the prisoner. And he always used to offer these little Gospels free of charge and uh, just gave them away. And he told me a true story about a prisoner who asked to have one of them. And uh, this man had discovered that the paper on which the Testaments were written are really great for roll-ups. And so he decided that he would, he would basically use them for that. But he felt a bit bad because he, he had a sense of God and he thought it's a bit bad to sort of use the Bible as, as a roll-up for your cigarettes. So he, he made a decision. He said, I'll read the page before I take it out and roll it up. Make sense? He smoked his way through Matthew, Mark, (laughs) and halfway through John's Gospel was converted. That's the power of the Word of God. Because he was reading it, and he was reading it with a, a seriousness of intent, and God met him. I can think of a friend of mine who prayed that his team would win the FA Cup, and if they won the FA Cup, He'd read the Bible through cover to cover. He read the Bible through cover to cover. He didn't go to church, but he was converted. The power of the Word of God. This is a Baptist church. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest known Baptists in history. How was he converted? Well, it was in a little Methodist chapel. He was trying to get to church, and there was snow around Colchester where he lived. And the preacher couldn't get there. And there was a, a, a farm laborer who was semi-literate. And uh, somebody read the scripture for him. And, and this man sort of began to preach. And it wasn't a very good sermon. In fact, Spurgeon on many occasions um, made much humor of it. The fact that this chap could hardly string sentences together. But he looked at Charles Spurgeon and said, this scripture, Jeremiah says, Look to me and be saved. And he said, young man, you need to look to Jesus and be saved. He was converted. The power of the word of God. Never underestimate it. Here's the second takeaway. There are different responses to God's word. I've, over the years, I've often wondered, is Jesus talking in actual percentages? Is he saying 75% of people who hear the word of God don't get it, for whatever reason, and only 25% do? I think what he's saying is, percentages or not, that many people hear, but the word makes no impact on them. Their hearts are hard. There's shallow soil. It goes in but doesn't grow. Or... The land is untended by brambles and thorns. Think about what Luke was saying. Those with a good 
and noble heart hear and receive the word of the Lord. I think that's an important reminder in our generation where we're the naught to success in 60, gen 60 seconds generation. We want everything quickly. We want instant answers. We want blessing on tap. But actually what Jesus is saying is spiritual growth is a steady thing. It's a steady process. It follows a discipline. There will be different responses to the word of God. When I was thinking about this this week, I thought about those who've been involved in children's work, Sunday school work, youth work, where it's often quite a thankless task. They prepare lessons, they turn up at youth club, uh, they take the epilogue, they do things over years and years and years, and yet they see very little fruit. And yet it's a long-term business. How many times have people found but later along life's journey, young people who sat in a Sunday school class looking bored out of their minds have come to faith. Seed that was sown in the heart of a young person has helped them make good decisions later in life, and they've come to faith. A real reminder to us that we just need to understand there are different responses to God's word, and not to give up because we don't see instant results. And here's the third takeaway, and it's very personal. Our hearts should be like good soil. As Luke puts it, we should have noble hearts. What does that mean? A noble heart is an honest heart, where we truthfully come before God. And we don't say, well, I'm going to do the reading today because it's in my diary to do it. I come to church because, well, I, I do that to keep my membership going. But there's that serious spiritual hunger and intent. They're the ones who hear the word and retain it. And by persevering, produce a crop. So I think there are two things today that we take from this. Somebody's got lost. <laughs> the first is, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to us to take the word of God seriously. I think that's something we often need to be reminded of, don't we? Reading the Bible by ourselves, personally. Listening to the Bible being taught. Preparing ourselves to listen. Uh, for the last number of years, I've been teaching preaching at Moreland's College, where I've been on the staff. And... Um, the second lecture that I take is entitled, How to Listen to a Sermon. And I've said to the students, has anyone ever told you how to listen to a sermon? I haven't found any students that said, yes, we have. <laughs> how do you listen to a sermon? Do you sort of sit there like a Strictly Come Dancing judge thinking, this is a seven, possibly a six. <laughs> More often than not, it's a four. Is that how you listen to a sermon? It's a really interesting thought, that, isn't it? How do we come to church? What do we talk about in the minutes leading up to the service beginning? How do we come, especially if we've got a little family and it's been hectic to get everybody uh, washed, dressed, and out in, into church on time? Or if for some of us, getting up and getting out is just 
more of a struggle than it ever used to be. How do we come to church? Do we pray for those who preach? Do we reflect on what I'm learning? What did God say to me today through my personal reading, through what happened uh, in my my church service. I went to speak at a church recently and it was one of the churches that said, look, feel free to choose what you want to preach on. And uh, I chose a passage in the New Testament on giving and talked about the importance of generosity and giving as a, as a biblical discipline. And afterwards, somebody said, Do you know what? In the last couple of months, you're the third preacher we've had who's spoken on that topic. To which I said, What's God saying to you? If God said something three times, are you listening? Because it's obviously a message that you as a church need to hear. I don't know whether you noticed in the king's coronation, uh, for me, one of the best bits of it was the prime minister, Rishi Sunak, reading the Bible. Did you agree with that? Uh, Those of us who are who are pastors often struggle with the fact that people read the Bible badly. And one of the things we try and get students to do is to learn how to read the Bible well, intelligently, clearly, uh, and and reverently too. And uh, I said to Ruth as we watched the coronation together, I know what to do now. She said, what? I said, if we want to hear the Bible read properly, get a Hindu to do it. Because he had obviously read it carefully. I think he'd probably had coaching on how to get the words across clearly. Because he saw it was an important occasion. And he was dealing with a holy book. It wasn't part of his religious faith. But it was a holy book. And he wanted to treat it in such a way. These are really practical lessons. These are some of the challenges I want to pass on. Back in the 18th century, there was a a preacher who had a a wonderful name. His name was Ebenezer Erskine. Isn't that a great name? The Reverend Ebenezer Erskine. You know, it stops the traffic when you just hear that. But uh, there was a a lady, a, a high society lady, who'd heard him preach. And she was deeply moved by the message, really touched by the Holy Spirit. And she found out where he was preaching the next Sunday, and she went to hear him. But she didn't get the same feeling. It didn't impact her in the same way. And afterwards, uh, she asked to speak to him and said, could, could he explain this? And Erskine said to her, Madam, the reason is this. Last Sabbath, you went to hear Jesus Christ. But this Sunday, you came to hear Ebenezer Erskine the difference that plays into our celebrity cult where we have our favorite preachers the people that we really like it's not about celebrity or having favorites it's about coming as hungry people wanting to hear from God but the parable as well as the challenge is also a great encouragement nothing can stop the word of God producing a harvest may not be instant but it's going to produce a harvest. And that's why we need to pray for receptive hearts, Christianity Explored that you're doing at the moment, 
praying for patient, patience in uh, sharing God's word where there seems to be little fruit and praying that in our own lives our faith level will rise. Our faith level as Christians in the UK is quite low at the moment. We don't expect things to happen, and yet we should, because we're dealing with God's word. It's not our technique. It's not the attractiveness of our buildings, our services, our worship music, or anything like that. It's the power of the word of God. I was thinking this week, at the moment, because it conventions begun this weekend. New wine, I think, starts in the next week or so. Scripture Union Beach Missions holiday camps for children and young people with uh, people like Falcon Holidays, CPAS, all starting off over this summer. Let's have faith to believe that God can do something in our nation, in the lives of people at these various events where they're transformed by the power of the Word of God. When I was uh, a little lad and used to suffer through these various services I went to. You, when you're little, you tend to look around, and remember when we had hymn boards? You'd practice doing mental arithmetic with the, the hymn boards, and <laughs> subtraction and division, all that sort of thing. Uh, you'd look around you, but one of the things I used to love to do was to watch when people came into church. Uh, because they'd come into church, and they'd adopt what I used to call the shampoo position. They'd come in, they'd sit down, and they'd put heads down like that, like they're having their hair washed. And I used to look and see, how long did they stay down for? Could you gauge someone's spirituality by how long they stayed there, or how short it was, or had they fallen asleep? Without being in the least bit uh, superficial or facetious, I think we could do with some of that. Not necessarily coming into church and having a few moments of quiet, but that, that preparation of our hearts to receive from God, that's part of being good soil, isn't it? Rather than just tumbling into church, oh, it's half past ten, it's Sunday, it's been a frantic morning, but preparing our hearts quietly, praying for those who lead the service, for those who are going to be teaching the word, looking after children, so that we come prepared wide open for what God has. And he'll surprise us because he's a God of surprises. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we want to be like the good soil. We want to have hearts that are open to you. We want to be people who take the word seriously in our lives think of that scripture where Paul writes and says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Forgive us, Lord, that we are sometimes superficial and we, we don't want to be like that, Lord. We, we want to be those who are serious disciples who listen and learn and grow. So help us with that, we pray. And we thank you today that your word is powerful and we pray that all over the world where it's being shared and taught and explained in large congregations or just in one-to-one -one conversations, may your word do its work today and produce a harvest for your glory 
and the extension of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus.